Hello everybody, it's Maria and welcome to today's episode of the Fitness Fertility Podcast and what an episode we have for you. In today's show, I had the absolute joy of interviewing Jessica Berg, the fertility detective. We talk about the nuts and bolts of fertility. We talk about PCOS, endometriosis and silent endometriosis. Now this show is so good, we have decided to separate it into two episodes. So make sure you come back next Friday because in next Friday's show, Jessica and I will continue our conversation by answering some of your most common questions around fertility. We very much hope that you enjoy today's show and that it helps you on your own fertility journey and make sure you tune back in next Friday to hear more. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Roisin. And welcome to the Fitness Fertility Podcast. This podcast is all about how improving your physical fitness can help support you on your very own fertility journey. I'm a personal trainer who specializes in training women with fertility problems. I myself have PCOS and have had two beautiful boys, and I'm on a mission to help you do the same. Before we get into it, we will be discussing adult themes such as where do babies come from, pregnancy loss and bereavement. We may also be sweary from time to time. We are optimistic, light-hearted girls, but we know this is a really stressful time for some of our listeners. We respect that. In this week's show, I am delighted to welcome Jessica Burke, aka the Fertility Detective, to the show. With almost 20 years of clinical experience dealing with fertility issues and pregnancy loss, Jessica has gained a reputation for helping people to succeed where everything else has failed. Jessica is a TEDx speaker co-author of The Guilt-Free Gourmet, and regularly appears in Irish media. She has featured as Ask the Expert on herfamily.ie and rollercoaster.ie and is the creator of the groundbreaking Making Sense of Miscarriage programme, which offers detailed, evidence-based support for those who have suffered pregnancy loss, as well as the Fertility Reset 2.0, a self-paced course that covers the key information needed to optimise your fertility potential. As your fertility detective, Jessica's goal is helping her clients to get pregnant and stay pregnant. Jessica, welcome to the Fitness Fertility Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And wow, it makes me feel very old actually listening to all of that. 20 years. It is quite a while. (laughs) I have to say, like, I can see you. And when I was looking at the 20 years, I was thinking, really, that's amazing. So, yeah, you're doing very well. Ah, you're very kind. I'll be 43 this summer. (laughs) Time flies. Whatever you are doing is working for you. So, you know, you're doing fab. (laughs) Just like yourself, going to the gym and that kind of thing. It does help. It does. And I guess, speaking a little bit about you and what you like to get up to, I'm really interested, actually, in how you've come to work in this area. Quite a roundabout way. I'm sure any of of my own listeners will be familiar with this story, but it happened by complete accident, really. So I started out, my primary degree was law and I became very ill in the first year. And that was definitely one of those catalyst moments in life. You know, when you're just lying on a couch for years, essentially something like infectious mononucleosis, but they, they couldn't define it as that. So I basically spent about a year lying on the couch, which was pretty depressing, age 18. (laughs) You know, you think your life is over. So it made me reassess a lot of things. And during that time, what really stood out to me was the fact that when I'd go to my doctor, there was really nothing that could be done for me. 
Essentially, the advice was just go home and rest. Drink convalescing drinks, you know, those awful drinks full of calories and ugh. And I just couldn't get my head around that. So around that time, on the recommendation of someone, I, I went for acupuncture. And I mean, I had no experience of that growing up whatsoever. It was all very much law, medicine, accounting. Do you know what I mean? Very traditional. I think it was just curiosity. I thought sure I might as well. But weirdly, as it so happened, I started to feel better. Of course, still suspecting placebo effect, all the usual. But eventually I started to think there must be something to this because I really was noticeably better with my energy and recovery. And subsequently in second year law, studied acupuncture alongside my studies. And of course, everyone thought I was insane. I finished out my law degree, continued on with the acupuncture, then did nutrition, clinical medicine, did postgrad studies in hospital in China, and very quickly was specializing in fertility. And funnily enough, the way it actually transpired, the first few clients I had, I was too scared, believe it or not, to take on any fertility clients. Because even though I'd made the decision, I remember the moment I was sitting in my hotel room, which was a very noisy to hotel room because it was part of the hospital in China. And it just sort of came to me that this definitely is something that I'm interested in because you're brought around the whole hospital. And when I got to the obstetrics gynae department, I was very interested and it just felt like I had an affinity for it. But I was too scared, like I said, because I felt such a huge responsibility. I mean, I still feel that massive responsibility. I still feel like you're only as good as your last client because everyone deserves that same level of interest and focus and digging on their behalf. At first, I just treated pregnant <laughs> cases because I thought, can't get that too wrong. But then very quickly, it just kind of snowballed, you know, because the pregnant people would tell me about their miscarriages and fast forward 20 odd years, here we are. I love how organic your story is. And I also love that you started with law and then just went woof and kind of went yeah. on a tangent. But you followed your heart, you followed your passion. I'm sure thousands of people are delighted that that is a choice you made because now you get to help so many people. Well, I feel very privileged to just have found something that I love to do. Not everybody gets that or many people spend years trying to discover what that is. And I just kind of fell into it. And it's funny you say that because back when I was studying law, I remember actually quite clearly before my second year law exams, pretty much having as close to what would call a panic attack the night before the exams, which I've never had before or since. It's all I can, you know, attribute it to. And when I think back on it now, it was essentially because everything, every fibre of my being was resisting this, telling me, this isn't what you're meant to be doing. It's just not you. I couldn't deal with law because I was all about fairness and justice and equality. And weirdly enough, that doesn't necessarily correlate in law. It's all about precedent. And yeah, I won't go down that rabbit hole. But basically, um, it's interesting how, you know, if you listen to your gut instinct, it can bring you in interesting directions. And I've actually seen that with a lot of fertility clients over the years. Often it'll come up that, you know, someone is in a similar position with the work that they do or it's causing them massive stress or they're working crazy hours or even shift work that they are trying to get out of. And they might be looking to change the type of work that they do. And it's a lovely thing to be a part of that as well, that it's not just about helping someone to get or stay pregnant, but also helping them with their life overall. I'm really interested because you were saying that you obviously you're all about fairness and justice and equality. And actually, maybe law wasn't the way to go with that. But when it comes to infertility, it isn't fair. 
And it is correct. And in my brain, I've kind of gone, well, you've kind of ended up there anyway, because it's not fair. But you're now helping people to kind of level the playing field with your work, which we will get into. So you've actually ended up, in my opinion, doing the thing that maybe you wanted to do in the first place, just in a way you weren't expecting. You're right. And I suppose there's um, overlap there. What I've realised looking back on it, that law actually did inform what I'm doing now, because a lot of what I do is about advocacy and ensuring that I can be the voice for those who are vulnerable, who maybe don't have the information that they need to really advocate for themselves or to make informed decisions. So, yeah, there's weird overlap there for sure. There is. Self-advocating is something we talk about a lot. Roshan and I say all the time, one of the reasons we do the pod is because we want to bring hope, but we want to bring really good information. And when I was watching your TEDx talk, which I highly recommend, you were chatting about this idea that a lot of us will know someone that has breast cancer, unfortunately. But you've got this idea of, as a baseline measure, We talk about breast cancer. We know about breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And I think you were saying the statistics are something like one in nine for breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And then you very cleverly go on to say, well, hang on a minute. When it comes to infertility, the statistics are one in six, but we're not talking about it. And to me, this ties into absolutely everything you've just said, because we're not talking about it. So we don't have the information. So it's impossible to self-advocate because you've got no Mm -hmm. idea what you're supposed to be talking about. Why do you Mm -hmm. think we're not talking about this? That is a complex and nuanced issue, for sure. Because, I mean, when I think back to, in some ways, you know, the the TED Talk was quite broad, you know, quite general. There were so many things I could have spoken about. But when I was trying to get to the crux of the issue, I was thinking of, well, I was thinking of my own daughter, because she's a teenager, and thinking of the next generation. And she actually came up in the talk as well, because I was just thinking about, you know, how can we make this different? How can we make this that we don't have history repeating itself in the next 20 years? Because, of course, fertility struggles have always been around. And I know this, I I spoke to my own grandmother about this many years ago, and she's uh, a mother of five because she was trying to understand what I do. And I was speaking to her about it and I said, so, you know, would you have been aware of, you know, friends or people who who maybe struggled to conceive? And she'd say, yeah, I suppose, you know, there was always, there'd be like Mary down the road who, oh, they'd been married a while. Bear in mind now, you know, my, my grandmother, she's now in her 90s, so different times. Um, and she said they would have been married a while and, you know, no kids yet. Or someone that, you know, had maybe partnered up, but again, it'd been 10, 15 years. So it Often the question that's posed is, so is it the case that it's just reported more now than it had been? Because, of course, if you if you were talking about fertility, then invariably you are to some degree talking about sex and that freaks people out. So, you know, there's a lot of shame and taboo and stigma, and especially if you look worldwide, which is really fascinating to dig into the difference in cultures and the cultural differences there with how people approach fertility struggles and whether it's acceptable to talk about it or not makes a huge difference as well. So you have that element of it, the kind of shrouded in shame, stigma taboo. But then equally, you just have the lack of education, which is improving. It's definitely improving. I make sure to check in with my daughter and ask her about this, what's being taught to you in the schools. But nonetheless, we're not there yet, you know. There's still, to a certain degree, which is understandable with teenagers, this thing of, 
well, you know, if you so much as look at someone, you'll get pregnant and all the discussion is just about barrier methods of contraception or any other methods to avoid pregnancy, leading people to believe, unfortunately, that in the future, well, it's essentially a guarantee. That's what we are all kind of taught. And that's really letting people down because what's really so critical to understand with fertility struggles is that it is a chronic situation, a chronic health condition of which there's many different health conditions that can play into it. But it is recognised by the World Health Organization as a health problem. And I think it really speaks to the issues we have in society when you consider that there was an article recently posted online. Uh, I won't say the name of the publication, but was basically talking about the, the lottery as it is in the UK with kind of the catchment area for being able to avail of fertility treatment. But what was garnering the, the interest, the attention for this article was not the article itself, but was the comments underneath the article. Because there were shocking comments from people who, of course, unfortunately, didn't know any better, a bit ignorant about the subject, who were saying that, oh, well, sure, why, why should we pay for your fertility treatment for you to have a child? Just go adopt. There is really, unfortunately, quite a, a strong divide between those who really understand about fertility struggles and those who don't. And of course, when people see the articles, which, you know, make the way around the world really very, very quickly, and they see people trolling or just being horrible or unkind, of course they're not going to speak about it because they'll worry that if they post this thing, they're going to get all these horrible comments. And I've seen I've seen them, the horrible, a mm. lot of the women I work with, we've mentioned this before, they have two accounts. They have the anonymous fertility account. Yes. And then they yes. have the one, like you say, with Auntie Marion, and that's the one where they just talk about the holidays and 100% get that as well. Completely. I love that you personally spoke to your grandmother. I think yeah. that's brilliant. Because a lot of people don't. <laughs> so I love that you had the conversation. Yeah, it's, it's so important to check in, learn from those who came before so it can inform us for the future. Absolutely. When it comes to fertility, there are some issues that are perhaps better known than others. Now, I fully appreciate we could probably do a show or eight shows on every single one of these issues. OK, so yeah, <laughs> I am aware of this. <laughs> what I was wondering was, particularly for any people who are new to this space, um, maybe people have found us start of the new year, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. If it's at all possible, would you be able to maybe just <laughs> highlight a couple of some of the key issues that you maybe see a lot? I always try to break things down into its most simple parts. Because fertility struggles can get very complicated very quickly. And that's what leads to overwhelm for people. Ultimately, what it boils down to, whether you're conceiving non-assisted or assisted, or conceiving with own eggs and sperm or donor eggs and sperm, doesn't matter, or indeed conceiving with surrogate. Ultimately, you do need three things, which is a good egg, a good sperm, and a good internal environment. How those three things are acquired can differ, okay? But those are the three things that are needed. And so if someone is concerned about their fertility, you are going to be essentially focusing on those three things. Where it gets complicated, of course, is the many different conditions that could play into those variables changing. So if we're talking about, say, egg quality, if you're looking at common conditions such as PCOS or endometriosis, which approximately one in 10 experience of reproductive age, so not necessarily those just dealing with fertility struggles, but really anyone, uh, they're extremely common chronic inflammatory conditions. And I would say show up in 
uh, I mean, at least 50 to 70 percent uh, of the clients I would see. There would also be thyroid conditions in there as well. And then you can bring into the mix a multitude of secondary health conditions, immune problems, etc. Again, we could be here all day <laughs> discussing all the variables. And also, of course, very important to account for the sperm quality, as I was saying, because if you're talking about making a good embryo, you need both. And I think often in this conversation, that gets overlooked. The focus is almost exclusively on the person with eggs, as opposed to accounting for assuming they're conceiving with a partner with sperm, that that's also looked at. If you're talking about the conditions PCOS and endometriosis, for example, just explain briefly what they are. PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. And contrary, actually, to its name, you don't automatically have to have cystic ovaries to be diagnosed with it. You normally need two out of three of the Rotterdam criteria. So the most preferred one by the Androgen Excess Society is to have elevated androgen hormones, such as testosterone. That's kind of a, a giveaway. And then of the other two, irregular cycles or potentially those cystic ovaries, which basically just mean that you've lots of immature follicles. So that would be picked up on a transvaginal ultrasound scan. That's not something you can tell yourself. That's important to note. What you can tell are if you have irregular cycles, particularly if they're very prolonged, far apart, like beyond 35 days. That can often be a clue that someone might have PCOS or indeed symptoms such as hair growth where you don't want it, hair loss where you do want it, or acne, things like that. But not everyone has those symptoms, and it's really important to note that. Testing is important. Then on the other side, you have endometriosis. It sounds like these would be very uh, opposing conditions, but actually they have the potential to coexist, which surprises people. So with endometriosis, again, another chronic inflammatory condition. And important to state that endometriosis is different to endometritis, which is an inflammation of the endometrium. So it can get confusing, but essentially you have what amounts to endometrial type tissue. It's not exactly the same as the endometrium, and it is found in places where it shouldn't be. Most commonly in and around the fallopian tubes and ovaries, but it can spread. It can be found on the heart tissue or the lungs. It can spread all around the body, which is really important to understand, uh, on the diaphragm, chest cavity. And I've actually interviewed uh, two great endometriosis specialists about this topic, Dr. Vidali and Dr. Liu, who are both online as well. Because it's so misunderstood and the average time to diagnosis for someone who's dealing with this could be anything from seven to 12 years, which is absolute madness. Hard to believe. Thing to note about endometriosis, typically, certainly not always, you might have symptoms of heavier, more clotting periods. Certainly anything to do with pain would be attributed to endometriosis in many cases. So not just painful periods, but painful sex, painful bowel movements, pain in the pelvic region at any point in your cycle. But pain is really the kind of common denominator. However, there's a subcategory, which is very common for those trying to conceive, which have silent endometriosis. So what that means, as the name suggests, your periods are fine. You don't notice anything unusual about them. You're just not getting pregnant. And in those cases, when they go in, they do find it. It just might not be tethered to, you know, the adhesions might not be on areas with as much nerve activity. Therefore, you're not feeling pain, but it's absolutely affecting the eggs. So that's just a brief overview of the PCOS and endo side of things. Mm -hmm. um, then there's obviously thyroid as well. And the thyroid is a little organ, little endocrine organ in the neck, which causes a whole host of problems if it's not working properly and is incredibly common 
within the world of fertility struggles. And I might add overlaps very often with PCOS or with endos. You can see how you very much have to look at fertility struggles like a spider's web. That's how I kind of view it in my brain. You're trying to connect all those dots rather than trying to just label yourself as having one issue, so to speak, as unfortunately that leads to things being overlooked. With thyroid, there can be a number of things going on. The most common is underactive thyroid, hypothyroid. You can absolutely also have hyper, so overactive, most commonly Graves' disease, an autoimmune condition. But hypo, underactive, is more common. So it tends to be more of the focus in discussion and obviously can be picked up in blood work. But very often what I see being overlooked is that they maybe don't rule out the thyroid antibodies. So someone might be taking thyroid medication for years before they're even trying to conceive. And unbeknownst to them, they have this background autoimmune picture, which is playing hugely into their odds of success. That's just a brief overview of the, the three main ones, because otherwise, yes, we'll be here all, all day talking about it. <laughs> I appreciate you actually managing to condense that information into a relatively short space of time, because I think that is a skill in itself. There's a couple of things that spring to mind. The World Health Organization recognise infertility mm -hmm. as a condition. They mm -hmm. recognise all these subcategories or if you like subconditions within this general overview. There are criteria for these conditions. Okay. So we mm -hmm. have the Rotterdam criteria for PCOS. We have criteria for endometriosis. This in some ways should be easier. It shouldn't be taking seven to 10 years to get a diagnosis yeah. of endometriosis. We have a list. We have symptoms. Why is this not more straightforward? Mm. <laughs> Um, now, this I really will have to condense because this will bring up all my, you know, lawyer <laughs> advocacy fighting for the greater good thoughts. So keeping it brief, it's a system issue. Genuinely, it is a system issue. And it is also a good part of it is due to the way medics were educated over the years. But again, it's changing. I'm thrilled to see there's a number of followers who I would engage with and would DM and talk to and share research who are doctors, embryologists, anyone who works in the field of, you know, nurse, midwife, whatever it might be, who would be in sort of the traditional allopathic medical model. And they're determined to do better. You know, they are learning. Unfortunately, if you look back, I mean, you don't have to look back too far in modern history to find a time when women were described as hysterical, hysteria. You know, that was a diagnosis and untold amounts of people were mistreated and told that, oh, you need antidepressants when actually they had health issues they were struggling with that were playing into their mood disturbance. So ultimately, yes, a system issue, which I really hope is starting to change. It is starting to shift, albeit at a somewhat glacial place, but it is getting there. And we just have to keep doing what we're doing here. We have to keep highlighting these topics because I very much believe in a kind of a grassroots effort, which is that the more people are informed, they will shift the game because they will go in requesting certain tests. They will know if something is said to them. They're like, no, that's actually not okay. And you shouldn't be recommending that to me. And I think I'd like a second medical opinion, please. We have to note that there is some great people out there trying to shift those goalposts, but equally, there's unfortunately still some remaining archaic, somewhat old fashioned viewpoints in this regard. And it ties back into what we were saying before about the need to talk about it, 
the need for self-advocacy, this idea that it's not fair, this idea of trying to remove the shame, that all ties in together. And the grassroots mm-hmm. idea, people like you, people who do the podcasts, people who write the books, it is mm-hmm. building up from the bottom up. But I know someone yeah. who has PCOS, endometriosis, underactive thyroid. Took them a long there time to go. conceive. I, this is like yeah. the trifecta. And I also know that when they went to the appointment with the gynecologist, they were told incorrect information. And mm. they knew it was incorrect. And they said, look, that's not true. And they had to self-advocate. And it was really hard. Yeah. It's incredibly hard. What you spoke to there, I'm very much a glass half full person. I kind of have to be in this job. <laughs> but there are certainly many times where I've seen things that would drag most people down. I have received detailed emails where someone describes an encounter that they had with a particular type of medic, whether GP or consultant, where they felt let down. And it's really heartbreaking to see. But rather than just going in circles, us all kind of having a moan about it like we would about the weather. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I, I want to affect change. I want it to shift. And part of that means being open to having the conversations and saying, okay, so this is where you're coming from. Let me share this piece of research and let's be open to a discussion because I think that's the only way we're going to bring things forward. It can't be an us and them mentality because it's it's never that, you know, you always need the integrated approach. There is absolutely a place, a vital place for surgery and medications, but equally We can't overlook individualized medicine and, you know, the impact of epigenetics, which is how your environment actually dictates how your genes will manifest, diet, lifestyle, etc. It's all has to be one big fusion would be the ideal. And I do know that you are very keen at working in an integrated way. I know that you work with doctors, you work with other practitioners, and you are very keen to get everybody on the same side. A lot of the women I'm working with it seems to be happening more and more, they have this horrible diagnosis of unexplained infertility. Mm -hmm. And honestly, the last maybe 10 women that I've spoken to, this has been the diagnosis. Mm. When you were talking about the silent endometriosis, yes, you can see where I'm going with this one. I can. (laughs) It's like a bigger question than a narrower question. I was going to ask you to talk about unexplained anyway. Absolutely. And then I wondered if silent endometriosis has anything to do with that. So I think we should start by defining what the diagnosis means. Because first off, I mean, let's be honest, guys, it's a pretty bizarre diagnosis, okay? In what other area of medicine, you have a heart issue or you have a problem with your lungs or whatever it is, you don't come out with a shrug of the shoulders. It's unexplained. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? We just, we don't know. You might get an idiopathic as in of unknown origin or iatrogenic derived from medicine, but it's rare to hear unexplained. Yet, with fertility, we're given that one. So to give the the defining criteria of it, because when you understand how the label is defined, it helps then to explain how this diagnosis is given and why people are kind of left falling through the cracks. To have a diagnosis of unexplained infertility, you need to be trying for over a year. You need to have had it established through internal investigations, of which there are many, with many different acronyms, to check that the tubes are open. Anything from a HICOSI to HSG, CISCAN, they're all versions of that, or HIFOSI, which would check that the tubes are open. Why? Because you need to know the mechanics can work, that the sperm has the opportunity to meet the egg in the fallopian tube. So the tubes have to be checked to be open, that the woman has a regular cycle that she's ovulating frequently, and from a semen analysis, that there are enough sperm and they're all swimming well. If you fulfill those criteria, 
you are officially unexplained infertility. Now, they might throw into that as well, doing some blood work too, checking some hormones. But unfortunately, the issue there is that the reference ranges, just a brief side note here, but if you forgive my geeking out, reference ranges are based on what? You know, if we need to talk about unexplained infertility, how are things being missed? We have to understand that the reference ranges, which are when you get something tested, the you know level that it needs to be within to be considered quote unquote normal, that is often based on people who are already sick. <laughs> okay, so that's often misunderstood that just because a range has been set, it does not mean that that range is optimal. So, for example, if we take something random like vitamin C, you know, I remember way back when I was studying that you were told that the RDA, the recommended daily allowance of vitamin C, was something like 60 milligrams, if I'm remembering correctly. And actually, that is the level set to avoid deficiency disease like scurvy. Wild, you know, something that, you know, the sailors with their limes would have avoided years ago. So this idea that fulfilling the range means it's optimal is nonsense. And that's often where people fall through the cracks. But secondly, as you spoke to with the silent endometriosis, the other areas need to be looked at more deeply. Sure, check that the tubes are open. Absolutely important. And I might add important to check the womb itself, make sure there's no polyps or fibroids or any issues there. But in many cases, it isn't enough. And when you're talking about unexplained infertility, what's really fascinating is that when investigated more thoroughly, a good 50% of those unexplained cases turn out to have silent endometriosis. So to investigate that, however, you need a laparoscopy, which is more invasive. It is done under general anaesthetic. It's not major surgery. OK, so you're not being cut open. It's not a laparotomy. A laparoscopy, as the name suggests, with a scope, you have two tiny incisions put each side of the belly button or just above and below, depending on the surgeon. And the instrumentation and the light on one side, and they puff up with gas and air so they can actually see the internal environment. And ideally, you want to be seeing an endometriosis specialist because, unfortunately, I see many people go for this procedure and they have what's known as a diagnostic laparoscopy, which basically means you go through all the hassle of general anaesthetic and going through the procedure to have somebody have a look, but not actually do anything <laughs> if they find something. So that's a whole waste of time, right? So you want to find someone who's a specialist. Um, so checking the internal environment more thoroughly can bypass that issue with unexplained infertility. Number two is the sperm. So the semen analysis is not enough. And again, the World Health Organization have also acknowledged this. They have said that it is an insufficient test to assess the quality of the sperm which I know can surprise some people, especially if they've never heard of other testing methods. So the semen analysis will just tell you how many sperm there are, how well they're swimming in the shape. So the count, motility and morphology, if you're looking at your report. But it tells you nothing about the genetic material in the head of the sperm. And that's where another test called the sperm DNA fragmentation test, which funnily enough, has actually been around since the 80s. That's when they first started looking into it. But that has been refined and there are newer methods now available because there's lots of different lab assay methods you can use to be able to assess that genetic quality within the head of the sperm, which remember, the sperm are made afresh every day. The sperm quality changes every few months. And that's critical to be reminded of because I've seen cases, again, if you're talking about unexplained, they might say to me, but sure, Jessica, that's great. We did the sperm DNA fragmentation test. Cool. When did you have it done? Oh, about 18 months ago. Ah, 
And what might have transpired in the meantime? Maybe he got a knock playing football. Maybe he fell ill with an infection and had a fever. There's a whole myriad of things that could have occurred that may have impacted the sperm during that time. So that's another area as well that I see frequently happening. I was posting about this the other day. Just the assumptions being made that everything's aligned at the right time isn't necessarily the case. That's where you want to go back through test results, which is obviously what I'd be doing every day with a fine tooth comb and getting clear on, okay, so what was assessed and when? So you can see what might have been missed in the greater picture. So that's obviously the internal environment, the sperm. And then finally, I would say the big piece with unexplained is not accounting for the overall health of the individual, ignoring the impact of secondary health conditions. And this is definitely, I suppose, one of the areas where allopathic medical model falls down. It's great when it comes to acute situations or surgery, but if it's anything chronic, the nature of our system is so hyper-specialised. I remember a a joke in the Medical Times, uh, within the Irish Times years ago, was a cartoon strip where uh, the first picture, it showed a doorway that said eyelashes. And then the knock on the door and the person asking, uh, can you assist me? And say, oh, no, 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 we're just eyelashes. For eyebrows, you have to go down the hall. That cartoon just spoke so accurately to the problems we have where if you have issues showing up in your blood work, you see a hematologist. But then if you have a problem with your thyroid, you'd have to go to the endocrinologist who specialise in hormones. But then if you also have problems with the IBS, then you might have to see the gastroenterologist. And you see where I'm getting at. The problem is that you can see all these individual specialists who are great at what they do, but there's very little real communication either between each other or taking the time to dive into the individual and their background health issues, because ultimately, of course, there's huge overlap with all of these areas. Um, And that's what I tend to see being overlooked. Did you say 50% of the time with unexplained infertility, it's silent endometriosis? Yes, correct. 50%. That is verified in the research. I cannot begin to tell you how often I see it. In fact, I would argue, I don't need to argue it, I've, I've seen it. When people come back to me with the reports from their laparoscopy, it is quite rare, actually, that it'll be found to be clear. And if I could go even further in cases where it's been found to be clear, in some cases it's due to not having looked properly, which is why, again, an endometriosis specialist is so important. So my follow on question, because this is what Mm. I would want to know is, how the hell do I get a laparoscopy with an endometriosis specialist if I've been diagnosed with unexplained infertility? Yes. So it is about really being in the know of who's good. (laughs) And this isn't anyone that I would name does not mean that anyone who's not named is poor. It's just these are the people I would have seen. So if you're within the Republic of Ireland, you might consider a referral to Dr. Cameron, K-A-M-R-A-N, or Dr. Booz, Dr. Kelvin Booz. Then in the UK, Dr. Peter Barton-Smith and Dr. Adrian Lauer, L-O-W-E-R, who are based in London. And then in New York, obviously, the two who I spoke to, Dr. Vidali, Andrea Vidali, and Dr. Liu, who are very high-level endometriosis specialists. And that's just obviously for the endometriosis side of things. Mm. Of course, I would refer on for other issues, whether it be urologist for looking at sperm health. You know, they say it takes a village to raise a child, but for sure, I'd say it takes a town (laughs) to create Mm. one. (laughs) So it is very important to have collaborative approach and um, very good supportive communication between various practitioners. Mm, Absolutely. 
you were talking about the sperm. And what I would want to know is, okay, let's say 18 months is too long ago. I had a virus. I got tackled at football, mm. whatever. How recently, if I'm a man, do I need to have had my sperm checked for me to be right? We're in the zone. It would somewhat vary, I suppose, by a couple's case in the sense that if a couple are under 30 and he'd had it done within the last six months, then I'll probably be more chill about it. But if the woman's over 40 and they're preparing for a very important fertility treatment cycle, maybe they've already had unsuccessful fertility treatment cycles, then I'm going to want to make darn sure that a repeat sperm test is done within uh, a couple of months, two to three months of that cycle, for sure. Amazing. And advocating for the fragmentation test as well, which again, I am hearing more and more about now. A lot of my clients yes. are pushing for that. Because it's not available on the NHS. <laughs> it's very difficult for people to get. I see this so often with UK clients. Yeah, again, it's a system issue. I mean, oof. it's so interesting. And what you're doing is you're taking all of this amazing knowledge and you're applying it to real people. And you're helping those people have a baby. Yeah, it's a pretty nice job. I have no doubt people will want to find you if they are not following you already. Where can our lovely listeners find you? Well, my name's Jessica Burke, aka The Fertility Detective. You will find me at The Fertility Detective on Instagram. I do a regular Fertility Friday Q&A, um, my email newsletter, and then obviously I do one-to-one -one support or my programmes. And actually, I'll be at the fertility show as well in the RDS coming up in March, if anyone's around. And I'm aiming to be over the one in the UK as well. So, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a busy year. Thank you so much, genuinely, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for coming on. I know our listeners will be delighted. My own clients are very excited that you're here today. So a massive, massive thank you for giving us your time and all of your knowledge. And I'm sure it will help our listeners. So thank you for coming on. Not at all. You're so welcome, Maria. And thank you so much for what you're doing. Likewise, I love your work. And I think it's so <laughs> important to support people on this journey. As you said, it takes a village of people. We all need to be participating in this conversation, helping people. So thank you so much. Thank you. I know I say it every week, but honestly, Jessica Burke knows everything about fertility. And then some. I had no idea there was a thing called silent endometriosis. And it's not case that I'm a newbie anymore, Maria. We have You're been not. doing this and 50%. I was shocked about that. Like genuinely, that's why I had to repeat the question. Because like I said, when we were chatting, I reckon the last 10-ish women or so I've spoken to have had the diagnosis of unexplained infertility. And obviously they're really upset by this because what, what do you do with unexplained infertility? So I'm thinking, oh my God, 50% of people have something that can be found. This is the thing to make it explained. And then you can deal with it. You find it, you get rid of it. That's massive to me. I, I couldn't believe it was 50%. It's massive. I just really hope that this information helps our listeners because that's gold to me. Because imagine if one of our listeners now goes to the doctors and asks for the laparoscopy and they find endometriosis. I mean, this is huge, absolutely massive. But even the step before that, when you think, well, you know it may even be a battle in order to try and persuade maybe a general practitioner that this is something that potentially could be wrong with you. Because you do tend to get a bit of eye rolling sometimes with the GPs because they think, oh, you've just been hitting Dr. Google again. But if you can go and research this, it makes it harder for them to say no. And I think if I was just looking at this from a purely odds point of view, if I was unexplained and I'd heard that anything was happening 50% of the time, 
That's certainly my priority. I would be there tomorrow. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. Remember to subscribe to get a shiny new episode each week. And please rate, comment and really importantly share with your friends, especially our trying to conceive sisters. You never know who's struggling and may need that little bit of extra help. This may come as a surprise, but we are not doctors. We strongly recommend that you consult with your doctor before beginning any exercise or nutrition program. Get everything checked out first. Your safety is our priority. This has been a Worth a Listen production.